up eventually, but you get the idea. So um, that is a, uh, uh, a spontaneous, um, we, we, uh, reinvention of my theme, the funky Friday at five. And I decided to go, go to town with it because it's in keeping with the theme of this particular episode. And that is the funky Friday at five. And, um, I didn't really finish it properly with the cadence and everything. I just sort of cut and paste, you know? Um, uh, so this is a part of a musical series with journey of an Esthete podcast. And, um, I'm your host, Mitch Hampton, and this is a, more or less a series about my musical and artistic journey, which, um, <laughs> as you'll see today in a few minutes, um, covers a lot of ground. I'm going to be talking about a lot of different kinds of things, but I want to say um, off the bat that everything I am discussing, at least in this episode, are things that I deeply love. So they are, they are human how do I put this? They're, they are human creations in history that touched me very deeply and inspired me to want to contribute in a similar uh, like-minded way uh, to what, what these folks or cats were doing over a, a span of time. So we're going to talk about some of that. So um, that's the Funky Friday. Now, that kind of thing where you, you have like a theme and you improvise on the theme is kind of what, uh, what for lack of a better word, uh, what people call jazz musicians do, improvising musicians. And I wanted to rewind uh, the tape a little bit, uh, the analog tape, uh, rewind the clock and go back to um, you know, the late 70s because um, I want to go back to my first piano teacher, Violeta Mendizi. And um, I got the courage to ask her, permission, you know, very strict, right? She's, you know, um, that's tonality. Well, I'm a tonal composer, uh, but I have, uh, um, um, I define tonality a little bit differently in the way it was traditionally defined so that it encompasses more, that's functional. What you just heard there is functional tonality. So like a. Five. C major, functional. But there's also a tonality that's not really functional, that has a lot more color in it, that comes, you know, uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, uh, cats start doing that. But we're going to talk about all that. So anyhow, Violet to Mandizi, I go to her, I say, you know, Miss Mandizi, I love jazz music. I don't really know how to play it yet. And I actually, at this point in time, uh, don't really even want to spend, how should I put this? I don't want to take time away from my classical studies and my, in my, in my um, technique training and the craft and all that, which is very important and very valuable and very good, I should add. Um, I wanna do that later, but you know, how about this for a compromise? I'm gonna get all this old sheet music. I have all these pop sheet music 
Um, and th this would have been 1979, actually. I was just baby in piano, baby in piano. Just a few years studying this thing. Um, and I'm going to say, the, I have these old, uh, what they call fake books, show, show music books with tunes in them. And I'm going to put a collage together of all these songs and I'm going to more or less stick to the music. Now, what I didn't tell her is that I was studying this very mediocre sheet music. So commercialized sheet music. So what's a good example? Um, well, you know, um, I don't know. Commercialized, commercialized sheet music is sort of like, um, you know, you have like the words on the top and then you have like the accompanying, accompanying, um, accompanying. Oh yeah, here's a, here's a really good example. So this is a perfect example actually. This Broadway. So, you know, you would see things like this and that's kind of just, you know, the bare boned, the bare boned, um, you know, lead line and then like kind of chord progressions, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sort of the commercialized, publicized sheet music of like a song. So like when a song's published and it's all written out, all the parts are written out, you know, and it's, it's kind of the kind of thing where, you know, um, you got that and it's sort of, um, that's what you look at and that's what you play. And, you know, the, um, the goal of that kind of, uh, commercially showed sheet music of popular song or even unpopular, even obscure song um, is so that people that can improvise sort of beginning students, intermediate piano students can sort of play it and approximate, you know, kind of what the song is. And some of those, I, I should, I, I spoke, I think I spoke a little too disparagingly because some of the sheet music is quite sophisticated. So I'm gonna find an example here on the damn thing. Um, this is Johnny Mandel, who is one of my favorite composers of the 20th century in his idiom. And he wrote a lot of songs that jazz performers love to play. And that singers love to sing, like Sarah Vaughn loves to sing, Johnny Mandel, um, Ella Fitzgerald, Diane Crow does them a lot. Um, and he also collaborated with, you know, but anyhow, Johnny Mandel, this is a good example. This is um, kind of the fully written music. So it's not, it's not necessarily, there are chord symbols there, but it's all. And so an example would be, I, I spliced all this music together. I've made, and actually, it's very analog because I had all this paper and I would, I would um, tape all the paper together to create my own medley. And I arranged with my dad and a local nightclub of some kind or some kind of a, I don't remember, some kind of, they had some kind of afternoon musicale. And I said, I'm Mitch Hampton. And I would have been, oh God, 13, 14 years old, I think. Well, some, somewhere between 13 and 16. I don't, I don't remember the exact year. Um, and I said, I want to perform these show tunes. And I'm going to, and I, you know, I got, I prepared all this stuff. So, um, and one of the songs that I did, I did a lot of material later on in, in, as a freshman in um, high school. 
this is before I went to Interlochen because I, I, I did three years at Interlochen rather than, rather than a full four years. And so I kind of went in as a sophomore at Interlochen, but I, I did time in Tampa and I, I think at a, um, they had some, you know, like a lot of schools have, they have like a talent shows and this kind of thing. I did the full arrangement of West Side Story, which that was a real, and I actually, that really had, had actually had a great impact on me because I like, I brought this whole entire class uh, to tears. And I, you know, I had all the kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, the kind of, um, a lot of the um, you know all the kind of the, the sort of instrumental music and the kind of the uh, the um, interlude and the ballet music and the dance music of Bernstein and Sondheim score, and I arranged that and I and I really realized that um, at that time I would have been I think uh, seventeen. That music can really touch people, especially a classic as well written as a, as West Side Story. Um, but you know, I'm going back in time. So before that, uh, this is the first time I've ever played anything that I'm not totally following the score with complete fidelity and religiosity, you know, rigid, rigidly. So it's not like I'm playing, you know. Uh, well, it's not like I'm playing this, um, um, this, which is Bach and John Lewis, you know, with all the parts. Just a lead sheet. And I'm going to play a little bit of a song, because one of the songs I did on that, on that sort of uh, my first solo performance, just me, I wasn't sharing the deal with anybody in, in Tampa. I, I remember I was wearing a kind of a, some kind of a tan khaki suit with the really wide lapels. It would have been, you know, 79. It was in the summer, I remember. And um, I did this stranger. It's called Stranger Stairway to the Stars, which is an old song by Frank Signorelli um, that was written for Glenn Miller in the 40s. And it was um, done by Ella Fitzgerald, Doris Day, and Marilyn Monroe. So it had a long career as a song until it became part of the movie Some Like It Hot. And I'm going to show you a clip from Some Like It Hot before. I think it goes, it's been a while since I played it. So um, But one of the interesting things about that song is you have you have this. That's the way people would play things back then. So we're going to one to four. One. one of the most common uh, movements in in functional harmonic functional. Tonal harmony music is used all the time, everywhere. Ten, hundreds of thousands of songs have that have that movement. It's very important, and this song has it. And um, 
you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like part of the language or the DNA, the marrow of music at that time. And so that was one of the songs. And, you know, I don't know why I included that. I sort of, it was a hodgepodge because I had songs from the 60s that were post-rock and roll. But most of the songs were pre-rock and roll. And that's an important historical point I want to make is that um, a lot of the, um, the stuff I'm talking about today um, uh, concerns the passage of time um, from what I would call pre-rock popular American music and rock, rock, rock proper, sort of post-rock popular American music. Because when rock came in, 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 alongside country and folk and those things, they literally took over and pretty much did everything. Um, they, they did a lot of uh, people that do what I, what I mean, like to do kind of out of a gig. And it's kind of, a, that really happened you know, in the history of art. That's kind of a big deal. You have, you know, one style of music that holds sway, you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s still too. You have a lot of very um, simplistic um, commercial music. It may be very well written, it may be, may be very good, but it's still simplistic commercial entertainment music. But it's not rock and roll. It comes out of the Swain era. It comes out of the era of the big bands. And then Elvis and the Beatles come in and it just, it's almost like a, it's a real, it's actually a revolution. It's almost equivalent to the industrial revolution. And so I think in a sense that that revolution, which really dislodged um, a lot of African-American music at that time. Now, African-American music and jazz music reemerges very strong later uh, with the Witherman Blues and all that. And that's, that's a bit, we're not there yet. So a lot of things start happening. But initially it really, you know, you can read accounts in music magazines, interviews of these great musicians that can't find a gig because they don't play rock, you know, or they, or they're, you know, and it's, um, it's an amazing thing. And I think it's kind of like, I didn't really want to do an episode about that, except to say that Stairway to the Stars is sort of like quintessential pre-rock uh, romantic music, you might say. And so I queued up a scene from the movie, Some Like It Hot. And um, this is a love scene between Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe, which is kind of a big deal. It's one of the great love scenes in, in cinema, Billy Wilder. And... Um, I want you to listen to the background music because there was a, you know, background music, like commercial music, studio music, they would do these kinds of um, the strings, you know, and the horns. And so let me get this here. It's not loud enough because it's enough. yourself a chance. Don't fight it. Relax. Like smoking without inhaling. So inhale. 
So that's an example of um, Hollywood writers using, um, and this is done all the time. Like I actually have watched streaming shows today where they would take the song and they'd have it under, you know, they'd have it as background or a cue to this extraordinary scene with Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe in this 50s movie, Some Like a Hot. And so um, I probably had seen this movie. I'm sure, I know I saw this movie, but on television, alas, because, you know, this is the late 70s, syndication. Not in, later, on, later on, I would be fortunate to see it in big screens at Film Forum or, or um, uh, oh God, Lincoln Center, or of course, you know, Harvard Film Archive, all, you know, the great cinema, all the, all the repertory houses. But, you know, then it was TV, you know, with commercial interruptions and things. And I was probably really taken with this Some Like It Hot. In fact, I know I was. I know that I taped it. I watched it a lot as a teenager. And so that's why I included that song. And some of the other songs were in there just because they were in this, this commercial sheet music. Like, oh, I'll try that. And so what I was trying to do is I said to myself, you know, I didn't know how to improvise. My ears were, as I said, still weak. So I thought, well, let's try to improve on some of these chords. And, you know, I would try to figure out. Um, so if we take, a, if we take, um, oh, here's a good example. I'm going to take uh, um, The Way You Look Tonight by Jerome Kern that was done by this guy, Fred Astaire, in the movie Carefree. And just take a few some of the melody up. So it's um this is the very you know bare boned original. the idea that's the a section of the song and so i tried to play now i try to play it the best i could in in the um i, I purposely played it in a very square um i guess that's what you could say so sort of square four square kind of you know very on the beat but i was i was trying to use my ears i thought well you know things like so a thing like this from but I you know I was trying to trying to uh, play better chords and so what I found is I did this concert in my own initiative of totally non-classical 
um, pre-rock and roll, 1930s, 40s, and 50s American popular music. And I felt it was a decent concert. People really enjoyed it, different ages. I mean, there were a lot of people, a lot of the audience were like boomers. So they would have been in their 30s then or 20s. And, they, you know, this wasn't really their music, but they, you know, the adults responded to it. And I thought, this is kind of interesting. And so that inspired me to put in a lot more time trying to figure out some of these, uh, some of these secrets or not secrets. Well, some of these uh, tricks of the trade or tools or things that, that cats were doing. And so I worked on that very, very heavily for many years. And so, you know, when I got to Interlock and Arts Academy, you know, I had to audition and everything for that. And my audition would have been all classical stuff, had to have been, you know, because there wasn't really, you know, that's kind of what you did. And, but I was always in, in my heart of hearts, I wanted to do this jazz music. And so my studies sort of paid off because I, you know, when I got to Interlock and I, um, uh, let's see, sophomore year, I tried out for the, the big band. Now this is a, this is a kind of an interesting thing. So um, when you when you think about the the phrase big band, most people think about the swing era, which was where it started, or even earlier, like Fletcher Henderson, Count Basie, um, and then of course the Great Duke Ellington Orchestra. And so the, those years are sort of like 1930s, 40s through the 50s. But when I went to Interlock and for the first time in my life, and again, this is an oversight because I had been listening to, I had studied and listened to Bud Powell and Charlie Parker and Bebop and even earlier jazz. But one thing I did not listen to at all and didn't know about at all was modern big band music. Um, by which I mean big band music that, that's after the small group Bebop revolution and the hard bop revolution. Um, that is, it's not Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey and, you know, Frank Sinatra. So, you know, not, not that period, but more modern. And the first time I heard that really was an interlock. And it's because I tried out for this big band and it was called a studio orchestra. Now, studio orchestra is a term that they use to describe an orchestra that's not really European classical in its intention. Its intention is to play background music, uh, music for television, for shows, Mitzi Gaynor, Doris, if Mitzi Gaynor and Doris Day are going to do a show, a studio orchestra will accompany her. Johnny Mandel, the book I just showed you, um, uh, Johnny Mandel did, did, did projects with Barbara Streisand and, and so on, and that kind of, that kind of milieu. So it's called a studio orchestra, and really it's the same as a big band. You have reed, you have woodwind, you have brass, you have rhythm section. And I remember auditioning for that, um, well, first of all, my audition, they asked me to play a solo piece and I played a blues, I think, totally alone, no bass, no drummer. And I, and I, they said, so Mitch, you did that. You did that very well. You had good ideas. They did say this, you might want to think about um, working a little bit on solo piano. This is really interesting because this would have been 1984. Yeah, 84, 85. And of course, as you know, three years later, I would, I would study with the master of solo piano, Stanley Cowell, whose whole mission was to be a complete solo pianist. But anyhow, if you're playing in a big band, you're gonna be 
you don't, you know, you are a company. It's an accompanying fashion. You're not, you know, it's not certainly not as full bodied or, or full figured or full as playing by yourself and covering all the parts of the song and everything. But I remember the audition piece was um, Patrick Williams score for the theme from the Bob Newhart show. And, you know, I was shocked because I, why, why would the audition thing be a Bob Newhart thing? This is something I, you know, this is the, you know, so. That kind of thing, though, you know, you know, this, uh, this uh, very, um, you know, television music is the theme, it's the theme song for a television show. And, that, and, I, and I was reading it. I remember they had the score there. I was gone. You know, it's, and I remember reading this and I read it, they said I read it perfectly. But you know, I as a little kid, I watched this show and I, but I thought it was really strange. Why, why, why is this Bob Newhart theme um, one of the audition pieces? And I guess it's to kind of test your reading, you know, and there was like some kind of a, uh, you know, it was very interesting, but you know, um, As a result of that uh, of that audition, you know, I get the piano chair, which is a big deal. It's like being a first violin in a classical, you know, ensemble or something, you know. And I'm the pianist. Amazing, uh, amazing. I mean, just great fortune for the studio orchestra. And I did that for a year, and that's when something really started to change inside of me, because I was playing these these big band charts and and. Uh, I discovered something. I discovered that I really, really was interested in what these arrangers were doing because I love the sound. And we did, you know, we did some very sophisticated charts. And so I got acquainted with um, the music of the 60s, 70s and 80s or 60s and 70s. Uh, a lot of Thad Jones charts, uh, of course, Sammy Nestico, who wrote for Basie and on and on. And so to give you a flavor of what I'm talking about, this kind of, um, post-Swain era modern big band writing. I, I, I compiled a couple of things here. And so, again, I never heard this before. I just say I'd only listen to small groups and I did not know at the time that, um, what didn't I know at the time? I didn't know at the time that um, I would like some of the stuff even more than the small group playing because of the textures and because, and because of the sound. And so I'll just give you a little taste here. This is, um, I'm going to start off playing, uh, the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Band was a band that started in 1966 at the Village Vanguard playing every Monday night. And Thad Jones was the trumpeter who had worked with Count Basie. Mel Lewis was the drummer. And they got together and they got all the best musicians in New York. And they said, we're going to play every Monday night and write music. And that was 1966. And here in 2022, they're still going strong. So every Monday night for 51 years, that band, you know, of course, different personnel and different generations. And, and, and it really, I, I really love Thad's writing. And, you know, when I listen to this, I'm going to play. Now I have, I have a, uh, this was released. I actually have a uh, documentation of the very first night 
of their gig in 66. And so what you're going to hear is what it sounded like to be in the Village Vanguard when they made their debut. And there was some incredible people in that band. Just again, I can't, I'm not going to list all the names, but just, uh, but I just want you to listen to the feeling of this. Um, So they haven't even gotten to, that's the introduction before the actual written music comes in. So th that goes on for like eight minutes before they bring in Thad Jones' written music. They just decided to open it up and have them all play like that. And it's a very spiritual, I mean, this has roots um, in the African-American church and, um, you know, it's just very deep. And um, that's Thad and Mel there. This is the... That is with the trumpet and it is Mel Lewis, the drummer. And this is them at that, around that time, 66. And so I just wanted to give you a flavor of what it would feel like to be in the Village Vanguard in 1966 and what you would have experienced in that room. So, um, but I wanna play a couple of charts that Thad wrote um, that show his, um, his incredible gift of harmony and composition. Cause we've been talking a little bit about harmony and I've been, um, you know, it's interesting. I want to I want to um, go back and play a little of this Bach because functional harmony. I pulled out this. Um, well, I got the Johnny Mandel out here. I might as well play what he wrote. Here he is. It's what he wrote. This is a song called Where Do You Start? And he, the introduction is. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
Remember I talked about going to four? We're going to four. Alan and Marilyn Bergman. I don't. I won't sing. But that's where do you start? How do you separate the present from the past? How do you deal with all those things you you thought would last that didn't last? With bits of memory scattered here and there, I look around and don't know where to start. Um, so that's that's important because I just talked about one. This is the fourth degree. So to get to one, we go. back to Bach, which is like hundreds of years earlier, right? So um, not a lot of music here. This is, this is going to be, I hope you got your, your coffee and your, 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 um, your uh, in for, I, I have to ask my producer, uh, is, it, is it okay, Laurie, if I get, get into, the deep, into the weeds on this here? Is, does it sound good? All right. So uh, where are we here? Oh, uh, Bach, yes. So um, this is from Nabok, uh, uh, did so many things. And, um, you know, I don't even know where to, that's a whole, right? But this is Precious Joy. Now, John Lewis was the head of the modern jazz quartet. And he, was a, he was a pianist. And this was a quartet with Milt Jackson on vibraphone. And, and they would do a lot of classical material and Bach, but also do African-American material, blues and gospel and bebop. And, and it's going to melt it all together. Really brilliant. 50s and 60s third stream, but he he would write sometimes do things with Bach, and this is the this is the precious joy of joy of Yezu man's desiring, and it's you know you've heard it before. It's also the seasonal. It's the time of year, November December. Functional harmony. Tonic. And John Lewis had fun because he went in and, you know, John, John Lewis was a box scholar, like one of the great box scholars that people don't talk about him really that way because he's known as a jazz pianist. And, Head of this this the Jazz Quartet, but he was you know he was um, he spent a lot of his life studying Bach as much as any classical uh, any of the classical pianists. Just amazing, and so he did this thing like um.
again, not too different than what I just played, but adding the harmony, filling it in more, and doing, but he, he kind of puts little touches in here. Um, I don't want to go through this whole thing because we'd be, we'd be here all day, but... He adds that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm staying close to the original material, staying close to the original material. And so what I was doing in those years is I was actually looking at Bach, studying Bach. I had access to this score, studying what John Lewis was doing. But this is all within the realm of functional harmony. So functional and functional, I should say functional tonality. So tonality is sort of like, well, let's talk about atonality first. So atonality is... I say close to, I don't, I don't know, is that fully atonal? I don't know. I mean, these are categories, you know, and of course categories, um, categorization happens sort of after musical creation. So people create things and then labels come in and you gotta market this stuff. So if you know, if you're doing, you know, like all, I, I got to study with Oliver Messian, I got to see him conduct his quartet for the end of time, amazing. The experiences I've had. Um, anyhow, um, so I fell in love with this Thad Jones. I fell in love with this big, what was called big band music. And I was always really confused. I'm like, this music is great. This music that I'm listening to by Thad Jones and these arrangers, I, I felt was as good as any of the classical European and American concert music being written. I really felt that. This stuff is great. Not all of it was to that level. I thought, well, this stuff is great. And it sounded great also because I was the piano chair in the studio orchestra. I was getting to hear for the first time the, the sound of these harmonies. And I like, I was really struggling to learn this stuff because it's very complex. I'll give you an example. So um, we're still in functional harmony. I'll get into non-functional, less functional harmony, probably in another, oh, probably another episode, because that has its own its own thing. But um, there's a um, so the the clip I just played you was the very beginning of this band. This is the band in 1970, so it's an album called Consummation, and I just want you to listen to. 
because I played this chart and I got to read the score and I just want to play a little bit. Also follows a song form. There's an A section and a B section, but but it's a there's a passage in this piece. Where are we here? Yeah, this is the section. We're talking. About. You know, the chart would be um, um, some of that stuff. Would, what key are they? Together. Yeah, he's an F still, like he's loving. sounds like that and he's using uh, textures like that but that 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 interlude of the brass getting very loud and the crescendo i thought well you know crying out loud this is like hindemith and was i was going i'd be going to classical concerts and i'd be hearing stuff that sounded very similar and so i came to the conclusion that it's only um the uh, stupidity is a harsh word but the kind of the well i'll tell you a story so um you know, while, I, while, I, while I'm learning this, getting to play this great music under Peter Brockman, um, I get an idea in my head. I thought, you know, I really want to write concert music, but I don't really know how. Like write a concerto or something. And so I'm in, I don't like I think I got in my head, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to write a saxophone concerto for some kid that was a classmate. He played alto saxophone. I think his name was John. I'm like, John, I want to write a concerto for you in the string orchestra out of the blue. Do you want to do it? He said, oh, yeah, sure. And so I <laughs> worked very hard. So this counts as the first piece I had ever written, sort of the first composition I'd ever, ever written, really, you know. He said, sure, I'll do this. And I wrote, and it was very, what I wrote was very, 
So I'm going to say, speak very objectively about it. It's incredibly inadequate. And it's really the work of somebody that doesn't know a lot of stuff. But it's also the work of somebody that's very curious and at least was, wants to apply what they've already learned. And so it was, it was kind of very, it's almost like early minimalism. I think the, the string part was... Um, saxophone part was that's all I remember it's lost It was a very short, short work, but that was that's kind of the language, the quality of it. And I got it performed by Dave Holland, not the bassist Dave Holland, but the the uh, conductor, teacher Interlock, and and um, he played hearing my music with the strings. It was really something. And they read it down like almost took no rehearsal because I what I, what I wrote was so simple minded, you know, just like. quality almost like uh even though i didn't really like this music it was it was sort of a little bit like edward elgar or something or william walton um you know it's weird you know it's funny when you when you're starting out in music you oftentimes sometimes i would do things about which i was not crazy or didn't really love but i would do it because i understood it. it's like being it's having integrity like well you know this isn't my favorite thing in the world but this is something i can sort of um uh, sort of, I don't know if the word is mimic, but I could sort of approximate it and, and kind of um, figure it out. So I wrote this piece. I was really, really pleased with myself, you know? And, you know, I'm not a guy, I got to say, I really didn't like, I mean, so I was pleased that I accomplished this because an enormous amount of hard work when writing a, a, a classical piece like this in high school. And I certainly knew its inadequacy. I knew what it lacked. I had more to learn. But Dave Holland enjoyed conducting it, and it gave this kid a star. He could be the lead. You know, what can I tell you? So during this period of time, I was getting deeper into jazz playing and uh, really deep into it, learning. I was starting to try to transcribe improvised solos by the greats. There was a there was a guy that taught at Interlocker named Tom Knifik, who was a great bassist, and he would bring. Well, let me give you an example. He brought two guest um, guest musicians, and guess who they were? These two musicians were playing in the Mel Lewis band, the same band I'd just been talking about, and I didn't know I didn't know who these guys were. Well, I'd like you to meet Kenny Warner, the pianist. Billy Drew's a saxophone and said, what are they, what are they? Well, currently they're playing in the Vanguard Orchestra. So you could see the continuity, the synchronicity. This was the music I was really interested in. And here were the two um, people actually doing it. And they did master classes. That blew my mind. I mean, Kenny Werner is a spiritual teacher as well as musician. And I don't need to tell you about him. You can see his 
lectures and he's really, 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 and Billy Drews is really, I think, underrated saxophonist. They're great, but you know, I'm in high school eating this stuff up and, and just seeing, getting to see these guys play and it's inspiring me and it's really um, getting to meet musicians of that caliber. And I just written this alto saxophone concerto. And so I figured, why don't I try to apply it to the Eastman summer program, Eastman school of music kind of jazz program. And I, I applied and I got in. And the thing about that is I was the youngest person there. And this would have been in the 80s in, in, in Rochester, New York. And I took my, excuse me, I took my score, my alto saxophone concerto, concerto for alto saxophone and strings, not lost to history. I just reconstructed it now from memory because the music's lost. There's no recording of it. And I said, you know, what if I show this piece to Sam Adler? Now, Samuel Adler was like one of the biggest names in composition and orchestration at Eastman School. I mean, really, he, he's an expert on, uh, on um, Hebrew music and strains and a really like, you know, this is Samuel Adler, you know, it's like, I must have had some chutzpah or hubris. Well, not, you know, I've always had, I never really had that big an ego, speaking truthfully. I was just kind of let's see if this works or, you know, it's Samuel Adler, let him look at my piece. And so I made an appointment and I kind of, you know, uh, cause you know, I'm, I'm also studying jazz. I'm not in the classical department there, but I got an appointment with Samuel Adler. And I remember I'm reconstructing this, this story just from memory and I bring in this sheet music and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take some music here. I'm just gonna, um, where am I here? I got to use something here to, I'll just use this even though I bring this in, like, you know. Control for Abstract Photo Orchestra. All right, Mitch, your name's Mitch Hampton. All right, well, let me show what piece you've written and what you worked on. He looked at it. He's looking at it. <laughs> he looks at me like uh, Mitch, Mr. Hampton, Mitch. Uh, uh, are you aware that in this piece you're writing? Uh, these are jazz harmonies you're writing in here, and these are these are like jazz progressions. Um, why did you write those, these, these chords and, and the way you had them voiced here? Why did you write this for this, this type of ensemble? What is your intention here? What are you, uh, what are you doing here? And so I didn't really know really what to say. I, I sort of figured, well, you know, uh, well, it's what I've been studying. It's what I like. And I wrote this piece and he says, well, you know, this is, this is, this is well done. But, you know, guess, you know, who's coming here next week? Oscar Peterson's coming to town, coming to our school to do a concert. And he's the greatest. He said, that's where this belongs. I mean, that's you more or less said that that's kind of what that's for. But you don't do that in a string quintet or do that in an orchestra piece is what he really said. And that was my first time, I think, encountering this kind of... Um, category distinction or function, you know, that if you write in, so if it's like, if you write, you know, like I, I just written this, actually, this is my, 
string quintet I've just written. I want somebody to play it, but I've got like, oh, this isn't good because I, uh, I, um, oh, I'll get to this later. But anyhow, it's like he said, you know, Oscar Peterson is, is the person that's supposed to do that. Not us or not we, because this is a different kind of music. And he was very, he was very, he was stern, he was direct, he was tough, but he was very, um, that was his, his viewpoint. I really, I think was really puzzled when I came out of that meeting because I looked at that piece. I thought, well, you know, I don't know. Um, about 15 years later, I was starting to write music and I was starting to write music for orchestra and chamber music under the, under the um, well, under the influence of, among other people, um, a man by the name of Tom, Tom McKinley, Thomas McKinley, as well as uh, some other people. And, I, and it was very much um, in defiance of, now I have to make clear, nothing against Samuel Adler. Samuel Adler, again, I've got, look what I've got, I've got his, um, I think I have his orchestration book somewhere around here. Oh, it's over here. Adler, Principles of Orchestration. So he was, you know, he knew his stuff, you know, but he seemed to be under the impression that um, that if you're going to write a, an orchestra piece, you're going to write an opera, the language has to be specific to that history. And you don't use a language from another, from Oscar Peterson. But I, you know, again, I was falling in love with these sounds and these things. I thought, well, why not put it all together? And I was starting to put it all together. And then the other thing too that happened then is that I was, you know, was um, playing these charts and I was playing with small groups. I was playing with some musicians from the big band and we would get together and we started to play gigs around town in Michigan, you know, um, co coffee houses, you know, we were, we were minors, so. I don't know. I don't remember what the rules were around there. I don't, don't pay attention to things like that usually, but we would play functions, you know, and I was really uh, playing with John Redmond's bass, bassist. And, and the more I was playing, the more I was getting, um, starting to get um, adept at, at, at trying to, you know, inter I would say internalize in my nervous system what I loved, but it was always gnawing at me. I put aside the composition. I thought, well, Samuel Admiral read me the riot act. I'm going to put composing away. I'm just going to concentrate on piano, which I did. You know, I thought, well, I'll just play jazz piano. Um, and I did that for, you know, a lot, again, a long time, like 10 years. I didn't even look uh, all through, all through New England conservatory of music. Um, at least my uh, undergraduate, I just did piano, 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 Stanley Cowell. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to get to Stanley Cowell. Uh, Stanley Cowell now because I think that when I studied with him, he um, got me interested in the piano as a solo instrument. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, um, typically if you have a song like it did the song, uh, song Cherokee by Ray Noble. Um, <laughs>
something like that, um, you know, I had been playing with these small groups and in small groups, the piano function is sort of like this. stuff and, and you know because you because you have you're working with other musicians you have, you have drums and bass going on what stanley cow did is he turned that completely around he said you must first learn to do the song as if there were as if there were no other musicians have it be complete and i worked with him on so much music i worked on that which is an old standard and he got me so that i mastered every aspect of the song I did Wayne Shorter compositions with him. I did, I reconstructed Gershwin's concerto on F with him and did a, did a um, 40 minute work for solo piano based on. Based on this concerto on F and, um, you know, and it was really, uh, really something. I mean, someone like Stanley Cowell, again, that's a whole other discussion because I sort of feel like, in a way, um, doing my undergraduate with him and, and really mastering all the elements of tonality, functional tonality, the left hand, the right hand, the middle section. So you would have... sort of um that's a very what i just did there is a very um kind of florid sort of um i don't know all over the place you know like uh the, the... Um... 
improvising, but you know, kind of a different tempos and different things. Now, this is all within a very, uh, not very, it's a within a restricted stylistic range coming out of the 40s, you know, in 30s, 40s, into the 50s. We're not doing, you know, again, I'm staying very, it's like Teddy Wilson, of course, Art Tatum, you know, those are some of the pianists. It's very, um, John Lewis said something very interesting in the interview. Somebody asked, John Lewis, what do you think about stride piano music? Um, don't you think that that style is kind of limited? And here's what John Lewis said. He's the guy that did the box study. John Lewis says, you know what? That music will never be limited. That music actually is probably going to last longer than some of these modern things that we're doing now. And he was, the interview was at the, uh, in the 70s. He says, you'd be surprised, he says, how complex that music is, you know. So it's not so limited. It's that interesting, interesting interview. I remember that was, I think, uh, Keyboard Magazine. I forget where it was. But anyhow, subject. So I'm playing in small groups. And here's the interesting thing. I asked, I said, Cow. I think Mr. Cow, you know, uh, what, what about with small groups? And he said, you know, if you know everything, just leave stuff out. And it worked like a charm. So when you know everything, you just leave stuff out so you're not in another musician's way. That's all you have to do. He says it's better to know it than not know it because then you know the song. So I found some things uh, here. Too much music. Too many, too many, uh, too many, um, yeah, too much music. Back to big band music. So big band music, um, I started getting into, of course I was into Thad Jones and the Murders, but actually I started getting into the more commercial show band music. And some of that stuff is kind of very endearing. And um, here's an example. This is Maynard Ferguson, Maynard Ferguson in the seventies. Huh. <laughs> and to show you, show you the diversity of this kind of, uh, this kind of thing. Um, uh, where are we here? This is an um, example. to stick something 70s in there eventually you know that would all he meant but this is the same instrumentation same instrumentation as the earlier Thad Jones examples same genre of music more or less and I thought well that's an incredible amount of diversity that you can do something with such you know 
Thad Jones is like, you know, very, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I don't know if general is a word. It's more, it's more stately and just, wow. I'm thinking Samuel Adler, I wanted to go to him, go back to him many years later. And every day I said, Dr. Adler, I think you're kind of wrong here. I think that there's a lot going on here. And I just think it's, um, it's just uh, prejudice or just, um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot here. I think this, again, as I said earlier, this so-called big band music, it's just good as the orchestral music or the wind music or any of the classical things. And I, I'm sure if I studied, Laurie would know more about this than I do, but drum and, drum and bugle corps music, I'm sure, which is not something I've really studied, but I, but I probably should, perhaps should. Maybe I should write something for drum and bugle corps. There's a lot of overlap between Maynard's world and that kind of stuff. And, Drum and bugle corps, wind ensemble music. Anyhow, when Stanley Kyle was trying to recreate all that on just the piano, the textures and sort of the idea of being a complete, you know, the piano was an orchestra. And, you know, um, Stanley Kyle wanted me to do a Wayne Shorter song. Because I had been doing this 30s and 40s music, you know. pentatonic scales, a lot of, you know, inside the function of the harmony, right? He said, Mitchell, this is how he talked. He said, Mitch, I wanted you to do a, a Wayne Shorter composition. Now I had, I had been doing, um, and I did his compositions. So um, gave me this uh, song called Fall. And I actually had to play this solo very now. We're still in tonality. You'll hear this, but just it's a different kind of tonality. So what does he have here? He has. I haven't played this in 40 years. Yeah, I just haven't because I haven't just, just haven't done it. Done other compositions by hand. But but in here, um, this is a different kind of tonality. It's not, you know, like it's you know, so he's he's you know, he he's a he's amazing composer. I mean, that's a that's a I'm not doing justice to him because it's just an example of something, but kind of like um
uh, it's, a, it's a totally different language, but it actually all comes out of this. comes out of that. Instead of that, you have it's a transformation of the material. It's, it's like I can see in my mind's eye over hundreds of years. I can see Bach to wing shorter. I can see it's hard. It's really, it's really hard to articulate when I'm trying, when I'm trying to. Um... And so I, and so I thought, well, you know, a lot, of, you know, at that time, a lot of cats around me were abandoning tonality. We were playing energy music or they were playing music that was not rooted in the time but i wanted to i i thought there was opportunity i thought there was um limitless opportunity infinite opportunity in tonality that's what i feel that's what i feel now you know i just wrote a piece to uh, the, again it's my newest thing string quintet i can find the damn thing i have so much music here yeah. where is it Ah, moved it over here. I feel like it's uh, musical chairs or charades or something. This is a this is a moment where there's a theme, and it's a theme I wrote. Sort of my string quintet, and so part of what you're hearing there is the piano, um, piano weaving in and out of the string quartet. But you know, it's just this kind of a, the kind of, I'm still working within the realm of that language. Um, that's just one passage. It's uh, I don't want to. It's a it's a it's a, it's a long work, and there's a lot of them. But so if you know any string players, or you yourself are violin player, you want to do this this kind of music that sounds like this. You're welcome to do it. I'd love to do it. Um, you know, but it's, uh, it comes from the heart, you know, and, um, um, 
So we're, we're up into 2022, because that's what I just wrote. So we've covered a lot of things today. I want to, um, let's see. I'm just thinking, trying to recap here. Um, this is over an hour and um, I try to approximate some of these things. And again, not all this is practice, not all this is planned. And so um, Stanley Cow, I think I'll leave you with um, that album. Play a little bit original um, composition Stanley Cowell wrote called Equipoise, which of course is about balance. Now, I don't want to speak too much about it, but that's one of his pieces that I've never learned. I never, we didn't work on that with him. I did other music of his. That's his most famous piece. I think that's the one that's been most done. He recorded it with Max Roach in the late 60s. And um, I played that because it's not available, that version. It's from this little album here. And it's not, you know, this isn't available. It's kind of out of print. Um, and I really appreciate very much, I really appreciate very much how he 
is using rhythm and blues and soul and contemporary, you know, and urban music. There's a lot of that in there and a real feeling for it in the context of solo piano, concert piano. And he's putting it all together and it's, um, you know, I hear Curtis Mayfield in there and I hear, you know, Marvin Gaye in there. And I, when I hear that, I, I feel like, you know, well, I, why can't a string quartet play sounds that sound like that or orchestras? Why not? So that's kind of how I feel about that. But, um, he'll be missed. And, um, and uh, there's a lot more to say. You know. Next episode, I'm going to kind of, um, part three, I'm probably going to just talk about my experiments in this realm of trying to do different things musically. And I hope you enjoyed this and I um, apologize if it was too long winded or if you were bored, hopefully you weren't, hopefully it was inspiring. And this has been Journey of an Esthete, Musical Memoir Part Two. Um, and uh, I hope you had a decent Black Friday and a Thanksgiving and the holiday season upon us. And um, I hope it's not too stressful for you and you find in the holiday season some moments of um, grace and equipoise, like the song I just played by Stanley Cow. Thank you. Good weekend.